don't know if you know the author Max Lucado. He wrote a book called God Came Near. It came out in 1987. It was one of those books that was uh, just well-timed for my spiritual development in high school. I remember reading that book and just very much appreciating his style, uh, his sort of creative takes on the Bible. One of the chapters in the book is called 25 Questions for Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so the he in the questions is Jesus. And so the questions are sort of pointing out uh, how different Jesus's upbringing must have been and the ironies contained. And it's sort of like that song, I know you've probably heard, uh, Mary, Did You Know? And one of the lines there is, this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. So let me read a few of these. I'm not going to read all 25 questions, but here are a few that Max talked about in the chapter. What was it like watching him pray? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he was at Passover and saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone you couldn't hear? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever scold him? Did he ever have to ask you a question about scripture? What did he and his cousin John talk about as kids? Did his other brothers and sisters understand what was happening? And the last one, did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? I love those questions because sometimes we come to the Christmas story and we know the facts. Mary and Joseph were just betrothed and there was a census and they had to go to Bethlehem and Jesus was born in a cattle trough. And, and so it's all very historical. And so it can be a bit sterile. But these were real people. And for the God of the universe to be born into a family and live with them as he grew up and went through adolescence and puberty and then adulthood, never once sinning, what did that look like practically? How did everyone around him act? And what did they think about him? Did they have any identity? Uh, 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 they have any idea of his true identity, what he would go on to accomplish? I mean, we get some hints of this in the, in the Gospels, right? There's the incident where Jesus is left behind accidentally by the family. And, and when Mary and Joseph find him, he's in the temple as a young man teaching the rabbis, astonishing them. And we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark in our sermon series that his family thought he was insane early in his public ministry. So we get glimpses. But we wonder if people knew that he would eventually be the suffering servant, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, giving up his life to be punished for the sins of his people. Our text today says that beyond being born in order to die, that he was also destined to conquer all things. That he 
would be a mighty warrior who would eventually crush all of his enemies to gain peace for his kingdom and his people. Of course, that mission of liberation would be totally misunderstood in his day, right? Everyone assumed this Messiah was the political liberator of the Jewish people from Rome. But his kingdom and his purpose had much greater designs than that. So our text today, Psalm 110, has phrases like, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. It's not usually the Jesus we think of in the manger. Mercy mild, no crying he makes, all is calm, all is bright, right? But we don't just get part of Jesus' story. We need to understand the whole story. And Psalm 110 is key to understanding what Jesus was destined to be. So this is a Christmas text in the sense that the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, had a much deeper purpose and a much greater working out that we'll see. So turn with me to Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds, so that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, and our lives may be conformed to what we've understood in Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. Jesus quotes it twice. Peter quotes it twice. Paul quotes it three times, the writer of Hebrews five times. One commentator said that to the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles. To the early church, it was full of treasures. This may be a difficult psalm at first, but it's worth digging for those treasures. The psalm, when it says, of David... It's hard to know whether it was written by him or about him, probably both. It's originally about David, right? God's anointed king. God had promised, even covenanted with David in 2 Samuel 7, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And yet we know that 
that's not how history played out. After David's son Solomon, the kingdom splits in half, and each half will go on for a couple hundred years until they're conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. And the kingship disappears. David's kingdom and his throne have seemed to fail. And so while Psalm 110 at first glance seems to describe David and his rule, just as the Davidic covenant points, again, this is not going to be a great shock if you have been here the last few weeks. As Dr. Dave keeps saying, this psalm that sounds like it's talking about King David is actually about the greater David, Jesus, right? So this is probably not where you go if you're having a conversation with a friend about Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension. Uh, this is a great psalm, uh, but it's, it's maybe not the one that you would use to prove that Jesus is Lord, but he did. Particularly verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you're reading the text carefully, you'll notice that Lord is in all caps sometimes and just capitalized at the beginning with lowercase other times. So what's going on there? Lord in all caps is the reference to Yahweh, God. Father God. So when it's Lord with just the first letter capitalized, who is it referring to? One of David's descendants? How can David call him my Lord? That, this is the question that the Pharisees couldn't answer when Jesus asked it. Go to Matthew 22. I've got it in your outline there. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Right? Quoting this psalm. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, if you have your Bible open and, and looked at Matthew 22 and looked back, it, that whole chapter is just a series of questions and traps that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, had been trying to trick Jesus with. Right? They, they just kept bringing these questions that they thought would stump him. And almost always, Jesus has better questions that leave them speechless, like he does here. And this one, Matthew says, this was the last one, because after that, they're not even going to try. Right? Nobody asked him anything. Jesus and the Pharisees are actually agreed that the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Lord there, lowercase, is a descendant of David. But Jesus wants more than that. He wants them to admit that this psalm is not about David. It's about this Messiah who 
of course, is standing right in front of them. So he asks them how David's son can also be his Lord. How can he be greater than David? But they can't answer. Jesus is saying that the right way to understand this psalm is to see God the Father handing all authority over to God the Son. Sit at my right hand means I'm granting you authority to rule in my name. The right hand of power. Now, of course, in our understanding of the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all one God, three persons, equal in everything, equal in power and glory. But there is an acceptance of roles that Jesus has submitted to the Father's design and will. And so this handing over the authority is the culmination of the redemptive acts of Jesus. It's when he's ascended into heaven after God raised him from the dead. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've probably heard the encouragement around Christmas that when we look at the manger, we should see the shadow of the cross. I like that. That's great advice. We have to remember that Jesus wasn't just born in that manger to be a cute baby or to prove that God could take on human flesh. There was a mission Jesus came for a purpose, to die for our sins, to have his righteousness substitute for our unrighteousness so that we could be one with the Father, which was accomplished on the cross. We just sang, oh, sing a song of Bethlehem, but then the song of Nazareth and Galilee as Jesus grows up, and then the song of Calvary when he died. And we sang, what child is this? Nails, spears, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. The word made flesh. We remember the cross, but I think it's helpful to also see Jesus' throne in the shadow of the manger. Because Jesus not only died, he rose and ascended to complete his redemptive actions for us. Now let's jump to verse 4, because it's another verse that gets heavy use in the New Testament, particularly as the author of Hebrews uses this psalm to explain Jesus and Jesus' priesthood. And so verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, I don't, if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, I'm not sure we would have a clue what this meant. We would have Genesis. There's some guy in Genesis named Melchizedek. But Hebrews spells it out for us. This is a beautiful part. This is kind of a long citation. Hang with me. Um, Hebrews 7, 14 through 27. I'm going to skip a couple verses. But it's so clear. Verse 14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, Chet? Psalm 110. Skip down to verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Psalm 110. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So very quickly, a summary. We know that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the one he came through, right? But that's not the priestly tribe. Levi was the priestly tribe, right? So, so Jesus couldn't be a, a priest, right? But verse 16 says he didn't become a priest based on his lineage, but on the basis that he had an indestructible life. That's a fascinating phrase. He's not in the line of Levi or Aaron. He's from this different kind of priest, Melchizedek, who just kind of shows up out of nowhere in Genesis 14. If you remember, he's both the king of Salem and a priest of Yahweh, it said. And earlier in Hebrews 7, it said that he is without father or mother or genealogy. This is talking about Melchizedek. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this mysterious person who has no beginning and no end and no family that's explained is the basis of Jesus' priesthood. I don't want to spend too much time. If you don't understand, we've got, uh, you can look on our website for sermons on Genesis 14 or Hebrews 7. But Psalm 110 says that Yahweh, God the Father, Lord in all caps, makes Jesus a priest forever. And so then from verses 25 through 27 in Hebrews 7, describes how Jesus is a priest. He makes intercession for his people we need someone between us and the holy god he doesn't have to sacrifice his own sin it says because he doesn't have any right jesus sinless life is what made him this holy innocent unstained sacrifice 
And he doesn't have to sacrifice daily. He offered his body as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. His body paid the penalty for sin that his people owe God because of their sin. So this descendant of David will unify the kingship and the high priesthood. That's fascinating. This is because it's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. He is the king. He's in charge. He made everything. Everything holds together in him. Human beings have sinned and have made themselves enemies of God. And God says that shed blood is required as the penalty for sin to be reconciled with him. And so in the Old Testament, right, the people have to have the priest sacrifice an animal to atone for their sins. But Hebrews reminds us that that's just a picture, a foreshadowing of the real way that God would forgive our sins. Ultimately, Jesus takes on the role of the great high priest and offers the sacrifice, which is also him, his body. He himself, the spotless lamb. The king himself takes the punishment, is the sacrifice of death that he requires from his guilty, condemned people. Then guess what Hebrews 10 goes on to say? Happened after Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. We're right back to Psalm 110. And the image of Jesus' ascension and being given all authority by the Father, after he fulfilled his great rescue mission. Now, the rest of Psalm 110, the verses we skipped and the ones that come after, describe how people respond to this priestly king. The priestly king can be obeyed or rejected. So verses 2 and 3 and 5 through 7. Let me read those again. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So the psalm says that either we will be numbered among God's people, offering ourselves freely to him, to be used by him in our holy garments given to us by him, or we will be his enemies that he will set his face against, executing his judgment on. Now, there are two images that are very easy to read past 
But as we look closer, they remind us how serious God is about defeating his enemies. I want to go back to verse 1 and, and that uh, image of making your enemies a footstool. Um, can I get somebody to come up here so I can put my foot on your neck and just show you? No, we won't do that. Let's, I'll use the projector. That image of your enemies as your footstool. It was uh, Joshua 10.24. The Israelites had just found five uh, kings who were fighting against them. They brought them out of the caves that they were hiding in, and they stepped on their necks before they executed them. That's a, it's a picture of total defeat when you've got someone in that position, right? They can't rise up against you. You'll crush their neck. And then look at the end of uh, Psalm 110, verse 7. It's a, a phrase that we just kind of run past. He will drink from the brook by the way. I thought that was interesting. It means that the Lord is in such hurried pursuit that he's not going to stop and take a leisurely lunch and, and be refreshed. He is pursuing his enemies, and he sees a brook, needs water, keeps going. That is the picture of an army that's not going to stop. He is advancing against to defeat his enemies. This is not... Again, the warm and fuzzy peace on earth message that you might have thought you were coming to hear this morning. Sorry. This is absolutely the wider, more long-term message of the incarnation of Jesus when he took on flesh. He came to free his people and bring them into his kingdom and to destroy his enemies. Only then is there true peace. Here's how Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26, usually one of our Easter texts, but useful this morning. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, what? Under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. At this Christmas time, if, if you've never understood or consider the Bible's claims about Jesus being the way to salvation, I want to invite you to consider that God is offering you a better gift than you will ever unwrap under a tree. The gift of salvation, the gift of being made right with him, of having your sins forgiven and your place in heaven secured. It's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that God accomplished these things. And it's just a matter of whether they will be applied to you or not. Please come talk to me or another member of the church after the service if this is new to you. And I was struck that, that reading this psalm, 
without knowing that it's about Jesus, as the Pharisees did, as many people I'm sure who are just reading through the Psalms don't necessarily immediately understand who it's about. When you read it that way, you don't get its depth. You don't understand how far-reaching it is, what it's really referring to, to until you know who it's about. And I just want to challenge us this morning because that may describe how we approach Christmas. Because it's so easy. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of you look very tired. I'm just up there singing. I'm like, gosh, there's not a lot of smiles. I mean, I'm there with, I mean, we're all, there's so much going on. We get intensely involved in the business of Christmas. If you finished your Christmas shopping like December 1st, don't tell anybody else because they won't appreciate But we can do that to Christmas. We can approach it and not see it for its full depth and who it's really about. We can do the gift giving without acknowledging the great giver of all the gifts. We can celebrate the spirit of the holiday while forgetting that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the holy days. We can treasure the trees, the decorations, the Hallmark movies, the parties, the eggnog, the singing, time off, travel, family. Whatever gives you that special Christmas feeling without remembering that Christ's mass, Christ's birth, is a celebration of the coming of the Messiah who changed everything. He infuses meaning into this whole season. Without him, we might as well skip to New Year's Eve. Christmas wouldn't exist unless Jesus accomplished everything his Father sent him to do, bringing salvation to the earth. I want to go to uh, Luke 1 to close our time. I want you to hear the first part of the prophecy of Zechariah. John the Baptist's father. You remember his story? The angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your wife is going to have a child. Well, as happens several times in the Bible, Elizabeth, his wife, is much too old for that. And so he does not believe, right? And so Gabriel says, well, you're going to be mute until he's born. And that's what happens. But then his tongue is loosened with the birth, and he actually has a, a prophecy about John's role. And so the second part of this is John the Baptist's role in preparing the way for Jesus. But the first half is a reminder of Jesus' mission. So it's Luke 1, 68 through 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness 
and righteousness before him all our days. That is the true meaning of Christmas. God raised up our deliverer. Let us rejoice and respond and serve him in holiness and righteousness all our days. Amen. Amen. Father God, thank you for this series, the Psalms, uh, Christmas in the Psalms. Thank you for what we've seen, the continual reminder that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, that the scriptures are written in a way that when we understand the key, that uh, it unlocks everything. We can read the scriptures with new eyes, with an understanding that they point to Jesus' redemptive work. And so thank you that Jesus was and is the king and the great high priest, the king whose subjects have rebelled, have sinned, and need a way to be made right, and he makes the way. sacrificing himself, the spotless lamb. God, we will never stop marveling at that. And even as that seems like a Good Friday, an Easter message, it is a Christmas message because, Jesus, you came first as a baby, but on the mission from the Lord, from God the Father, to accomplish our salvation. And so we wonder, wonder, and are amazed and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in Hebrews chapters 1 and, or 2 and 3, a few verses. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of, his, of the people. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him. See you Tuesday night.